Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're taking you through the best bits of Swipe to Unlock by Aditya Agesh, Neil Metna, and Path to Detroit, a primer on technology and business strategy. Sorry, fellas, I got that wrong. I <laughs> you tried, you tried. No matter what you do for a living, it's becoming essential to understand technology. Doctors are using AI to diagnose patients. Farmers are using drones to grow better crops. Business people have realized that the world's biggest companies, they used to be built on oil. Now they're all the electric firms. If you think of the biggest companies of the last 30 years, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, that's where the world's headed. That's it. And in your business, you're probably going to get consumed by some techies throwing around some acronyms and some words that you might not have heard of before, like SAS or SAAS, APIs, SSL, CDN, AR, VR, the cloud, just to name a few. It often feels like you need an MBA to understand those TLAs, the three-letter acronyms. Uh, What's a T? Oh, okay. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> it's a bit of a meta. What's a CDN, Astro? I didn't get that after. Uh, content Delivery Network, Okay, I think. Okay. Something like that. We'll go with that. Uh, but yeah, there's all these things flying around. You, you probably might feel out of your depth, but it doesn't take much to get a basic understanding. And you're probably not going to get better teachers than these three blokes. I won't... Th- um, really out their names again, but one of them is a product manager at Google, another is a product manager at Microsoft, and the other one is a product manager at Facebook. So these guys are pretty legit in the tech world, and they know their stuff. That's right. And the the best thing about this book is they gave you know somewhat complex and uh, you know if you're not in that world, quite strange and difficult topics. They gave they broke it down pretty easy with some simple analogies and some simple stories as well. So let's take a peek under the hood and some of the technologies, tools and programs about the apps that we use every day because a lot of them, they're pretty similar um, when you do take a peek under the hood with the same building blocks. Yeah, definitely. Netflix and Uber feel pretty different or Uber and Pokemon Go seem like nothing alike, but they're actually quite well linked. Let's start off with uh, Google. And the first question I ask is, how does Google search work? You know, whenever you search on Google, the search engine combs through 30 trillion web pages on the internet, they find the top 10 results to your question and magically 92% of the time you click on a result on the first page. 30 trillion is ridiculous. If you, well, how many, is that a, a trillion, a thousand billion? A thousand billion, yeah. So that means each person, <laughs> individual on earth has got 3,000 web pages. I think they <laughs> Something like marked that. up an extra zero on the end there potentially, but these, no, hey, these sh- lads. There's a shitload of web pages. Okay. So it's, like if Google's trying to find which one out of 30 trillion or everyone's got 3,000, every human being, 3,000 lying around the house, it's like finding a penny drop somewhere in New York. But somehow Google just expertly in just half a second just figures it out and finds it. And they said 92% of the time you click on something on the first page. That seems low. I can I'm approaching 100% of the time. I'm almost never going to page two or beyond. Mm. So they do, they do, Google, they've done pretty well to be able to work out somehow match up what you're looking for and they magically find it and give it to you. So Google doesn't knock on every door and just try and find out what you're actually looking for. What it does instead, it stores information about web pages in databases. So it's like this insanely big uh, Excel file where they've got all this wild data and then they use algorithms to actually read through the databases and figure out, hey, what's the best way to go about this to, to end up deciding what to show you. So it all starts with crawling. So Google's algorithm, it starts by building this database of every web page on the internet. They send out what they call a spider to go and crawl over the web pages. And basically what they do, they send the spider to a couple of big web pages, like some of the, some of the biggest ones out there. 
they make a list of all the shit that's on that website, some of the main things. And then what they do is they then go and basically the spider goes and clicks on all the links on that website to go and find all the next bunch of pages. And they add that to their index. Then they click on all the links on that website, go to the next one. And they basically just do this until they found every possible page there is on the internet. Yeah, and if you ever launch a website, I think actually our first one, we thought, oh, there's all these people visiting our website. And then I think later we realized it's just um, some of those crawlers, <laughs> not even real humans. So the index of pages is obviously huge, 100 million gigabytes. And uh, if you have one terabyte of external hard drive, you need 100,000 of them. So there's shitloads. So what does this algorithm actually look like? Obviously, the simplest way to try to find, you know, if someone searches, uh, how do I bake brownies, then they would see... Do a quick search, do a control F of this massive Excel, brownies, and then find, oh, this page has got 15 brownies mentioned. This one's got 12 brownies mentioned. Oh, we'll put the 15 one. That'll pop up as number one. Which was level one Google, right? That's how they started it. That was, yeah, basically all the, uh, or level one search engine for sure. You know, in the 90s, basically that's what it was, was just keyword density. But, of course, it's pretty easy to game that. Imagine if, say, you're the... Uh, candy bar company Snickers obviously if someone searches Snickers they're probably looking for Snickers.com but uh, you know some of the the dodgy marketers could game this and just have a random page on their website and just had Snickers 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 a hundred times to bump up above Snickers yeah that's so it's a pretty, so you'd it's actually have a white system. background with white text so you can't see Snickers mm. but you'd have it a million times and then you're just going to land Snickers you probably have every word and just be land everything <laughs> it was that easy to game that's it but they've gotten pretty um, sophisticated now in changing their algorithms so they're rolling out minor updates 500 times a year and it's if you got some analogy what works best, it's like being uh, who's the most popular at a party. If someone walks in, there's probably a bunch of things that you can see, maybe how they're dressed, uh, the amount of people who's standing around them, and probably the caliber of people standing around them. So if they're rolling in in a Lambo with uh, with six NFL quarterback superstars, for the lack of a better uh, high-status individual I can think <laughs> of, um, then they're probably going to be ranked high in the party. And similar mm. in Google, if you've got... Other people web linking to you who have, you know, the New York Times are linking to your book um, post that you just launched or something like that. You're probably going to rank high on Google, uh, especially as well if there's other uh, high-ranking hyperlinks around the internet. That's it. And that was really that core innovation of, of Google. Larry Page and Sergey Brin, that was their PhD thesis in 1998 was this idea of page rank. That seems recent. Yes. I thought it was earlier. But they've done bloody well in uh, just two decades to dominate the whole world. Um, but basically, yeah, that's what their thing was. It wasn't just keyword density, which is so easy to game. The main thing was page rank. What are the big important websites with high authority scores? Are they linking to you? If they do, that should be ranked higher. There's a few other things in there as well, like how recently it was updated, location. So obviously, if you're in, if you search football in Australia, you probably get the AFL website. If you search football in England, you probably get the EPL website. So location is important. And also they try to blacklist anyone who looks too spammy. Anyone who's dropping Snickers in 300 times on one page is probably out. Yeah, they get the boot a little bit. Mate, another one that's really interesting is uh, Spotify, which again is a pretty similar one. You can imagine it's being um, ranked in what it actually suggests to you. But every Monday morning, it's pretty scary when they when you hit Discover Weekly and you listen to it, and you're like, shit, they actually know my taste better than I do. And they just deliver you some phenomenal, well-thought-out music that is just specifically for you. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. This, in that 30 songs, there's probably some you used to listen to when you were a kid. There's probably some you never heard of, but when you hear it, you love it, and it's pretty insane. And so within six months of launching uh, in June 2015, this Discover Weekly had been streamed 1.7 billion times. So obviously, it was pretty popular. It was working. And if there's 200 million users on Spotify... 
Uh, does that mean there's someone just curating, oh, let's, what's Adam Jones going to listen to this week? I'll pick him a few songs. Or what's Adam Ashton going to listen to? I'll pick him a few songs. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Well, it feel, definitely feels like that, but it's much quite simpler than it sounds. So the way the Discover Weekly algorithm uh, works, it starts by looking at a few bits of information. Firstly, it looks at all the songs you've listened to and liked and added to your library and playlist recently. So it's smart enough to know also if you, you listen to a song, you skipped it after 30 seconds, yeah. probably thought it was shit. Mm. Secondly, it looks at all the playlists that other people have made. So, you know, if I'm listening to a bunch of music and Astro's got the same music taste in me or someone else around the world, it sort of matches the two pieces of data up together. Yeah, that's right. If you've got a playlist and you've put 10 songs on, you know, the Adam Jones special playlist and then I've got the Adam Ashton special and nine of those songs are on mine as well, there's probably a good chance that the 10th one that isn't yet on mine is something I'm going to like considering we had so much overlap. Obviously, it looks at other things as well, like what types of um, genres you're interested in, obviously the the big genres, uh, but also the micro genres. There might be some weird niche things that you're interested in that they can kind of mix and match and put things together and find something different you'd never really thought of but instantly love. So that's interesting. That's how Netflix movie suggestions, YouTube video suggestions, Facebook's friend suggestions, they use this collaborative filtering where they get everything you do and find someone who's very similar to you and say, if, you know, you've got 95% overlap, mm. it's probably a good chance that remaining 5% are going to be big hits for you. Definitely. The only thing with the Netflix one, you know how it's like, it gives you like a percentage, you know, there's yep. like a 97%. I feel like everything's 95 plus. They're never like, this is a 70% chance. Mm, yeah, I, I agree. They're, they're <laughs> bullshit there. And also the Netflix one, you know, as soon as, um, you know, your partner, like Corey's got my same account. I know straight away when she's ruined the algorithm. <laughs> That's right. All the chick flicky stuff pops in there. So it gets right. it wrong there. It should know distinctly how different it is <laughs> it's like my withers scale like one day I, you know i'm weighing whatever it is 98 or whatever yeah someone else comes in and weighs in 110 when they stand on it. it's smart enough to know the difference uh-huh. this is obviously someone else that's a pretty basic thing and that's yeah. what netflix should be doing <laughs> they should, i suppose they've, they've got the different accounts you can have on there but yeah you're right i use the same account as well and really, I guess the big reason is why the hell did Spotify spend so much time and effort and money in building something like this? And the point really is that it makes it pretty sticky. Once you've built up a bit of a profile, once you've been using Spotify for six or nine or 12 months in Spotify, you've kind of trained it, you've kind of trained the algorithm, and they're giving you the best stuff possible. There's a big switching cost to go over and start afresh on a new streaming platform. Yeah, there's no way I'm going Apple Music, probably even if it was free, to be honest. If yeah. they charged me for free, I'd still pay for Spotify because of that, um, the, the, the moat they've built there. Now, the last point they got on uh, technology here is another thing where you got Uber, Yelp, Pokemon Go, all similar in this sense, and all technology is able to actually speak with each other. If you think about when you jump into Uber, they haven't created their own um, maps in there. They're actually borrowing from the other software, Google Maps. And likewise, with other technologies, they are able to integrate them into their own, into their own uh, apps. That's right. If you were Uber... And obviously, you need to you need obviously a map of pretty much every single street in the world, or at least in the places that you operate, because you need to know where the person is. You need to know what other cars are around. You need to find what's the quickest route. But for Uber to create their own map, it's going to take a bloody long time. They have to drive literally every single street, every single building, and map it out. Mm. And for them, it's probably going to be billions of dollars, tens or hundreds of thousands of hours to get this all done. And it's not really going to be worth it in the end. 
uh, and they found a shortcut, and the shortcut is, well, actually, someone else has already done that. Google's done that. They've sent their vans around, taking photos of people, sometimes catching people in the act, sometimes catching people doing weird shit on their, on their Google Maps, but at the very least, they've got a pretty accurate and updated view of what the world looks like, and so Uber just says, hey, Google, can we, uh, can we use this info and uh, save ourselves a bit of trouble? Mm-hmm. And they say, yes, of course. And the way they do that is they build this functionality called APIs, so application programming interfaces. So in short, it lets apps talk to each other. So you know, every little bit of technology, MailChimp, ActiveCampaign or Stripe, they have these APIs to actually integrate with whatever you're trying to build yourself. And that means you don't have to go out there and just invent, reinvent the wheel. You could borrow elements of other apps to get there. That's right. If you think of your phone... There's like a, a camera API that zooms in and focuses and takes photos and saves it to your um, to your phone. Obviously, Google Maps they have this API where other things can then use this Google Maps API rather than building it themselves from scratch. You know, say the New York subway system, uh, it allows you you can track uh, where your trains are and predict when the next train's coming. That's through an API as well. There's all these APIs everywhere that are really just borrowing each other's technology to shortcut the system. What happens when you type something into your internet browser and you hit enter? And something we do all day and all the time. And if you asked me before reading this book, I would have no idea. I literally got zilch idea. <laughs> I know where you were as well, Asho, if you had no idea. I was probably close to no idea and close to, in fact, pretty much never even thought about it either. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, feel, it just feels like it doesn't have, you know, it's not... Um, rooted in the real world. It's not mm. like that internet thing is somewhere physical. <laughs> it's like it definitely, magically... It definitely feels like magic, doesn't it? If you don't understand it and you can't explain it, it just feels like there's some magic elf behind the scenes who's just doing everything for you. Well, it turns out like you've got a home address with a geographically rooted in the real world. Your website address is pretty similar, actually. So, let's just say if we told you know everyone listening right now to go to... 79 Fake Street, Edith Vale, uh, 3193, everyone would converge on the same place. So even if you hadn't been to Australia before, uh, everyone would know how to actually get there. That's right. You'll end up in the same place. Similarly, if you go to nytimes.com slash section slash sports, then everybody knows how to get to this exact same spot uh, using that uniform resource locator or the URL. That's probably the bit that you already did know and you type the URL address into the into the search bar and hit enter. You probably knew about that. What you probably may not have known is that the computer or the internet behind the scenes, they've got no idea what that URL means. And actually what the, the letter URL that we use is actually linked to a sort of numbers IP address, internet protocol address that the computer knows. Yeah, so Google, for example, it's like a 216.f58. Dot two one nine blah 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 blah. So when you type in Google, it's <laughs> actually got a number behind it. I think that would actually work. Yeah, Topping we'll do a in. quick we'll do a quick test on the fly. Two one six dot five eight dot two one nine dot two zero six dot zero. Yep, there you go. It takes me to Google. I, go. I think it just Google searched for that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe it doesn't. Maybe these guys are talking shit. Yeah, yeah maybe they're talking, <laughs> maybe we didn't we type it in right. They could, they could, it's like a mechanic, used car mechanic sort of thing. But, but basically, anything. what it is, the URL that we use is. Like pretty much everything's matched up with a number IP address that the internet knows and then that's why they, they search for that number rather than for the, the URL. So then the next question really is like how does, you know, just because you type the words or that number in and you hit enter, how does it actually get to you? Yeah, so this is one of the things I always thought it just goes by magic mm-hmm. but it actually does take a follow a path. 
So it it pretty much does take a similar path as well to as if you were driving to a location. So if we're going from you know Melbourne to Sydney, the actual internet signal follows the same path just through uh, just through wires, right? That's right, and it basically jumps or it's a, it hops is the I guess the computer lingo for it, but it hops from basically one intermediate computer to another. So basically, the website is broken down into a whole bunch of different packets, and the packets hop from one computer to another, send the signal along, and eventually get to you. Obviously, very, very quickly. But yeah, if you're going from Melbourne to Sydney, it probably hops to Seymour, and then it hops to uh, Shepparton, then it hops to Kunumu, and then it, I don't know what else is along the way, and then it eventually gets to you uh, on the other side. Which brings us to the next one. What happens when it's in a cloud, though? <laughs> what about this old cloud? Isn't there just these physical wires... <laughs> redundant because you got a cloud yeah well that's right don't you think that you know if you go back 15 even 10 years really but you're going to blockbuster to rent movies you're buying a physical photoshop and a cd-rom or you're buying microsoft office on a disc and install it onto your computer everything's like a physical thing on your computer whereas now it's just in the cloud just up in the air floating around somewhere so it really did revolutionize a lot of things just to think about netflix if you actually to have every uh, movie on your own computer It'd be a huge <laughs> database, right? Of uh, so you're better off actually having it somewhere else, and that's where you actually uh, what you have gets you. So your utilization of whatever you got is is much higher. A bit like a car. Like if you've got, um, if you just buy your own car and drive it for one hour a day, compared to someone who's doing Uber and for ten or eleven hours a day, there's a higher utilization. You only pay for what you use. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose the the main thing is the the cloud. That it sounds like it's a something up in the air floating around it's actually not it's actually just a whole bunch of other people's computers there is still those physical wires and stuff uh it's just not as you say if you want want to store every single movie on netflix you'd need a whole room whereas netflix has got these movies stored sort of all over the world and when you want to use it that's when you go and grab it from somebody else's computer so simply put what the cloud really is it's just someone else's computer that's all it is so you just got big data centers where they've got loaded up with specialized cloud computers and then there's wires from your computer connecting to them. And through those wires, you're just borrowing someone else's wildly big computer um, temporarily <laughs> while you use it. So that's what happens when you watch Netflix. You're just actually using that computer somewhere else. That's right. And it's, it's not just like a, an employee at Netflix. You're not just using their laptop for a bit, obviously. We're talking massive uh, centers, data centers, rooms full of racks and racks and racks of servers all stacked up with massive... Uh, cooling systems because uh, servers when they're running they get pretty bloody hot they've got backup electrical generators so that otherwise if the power goes out and you no longer can watch your uh, Stranger Things season finale or anything like that uh, and obviously it has shitload of security as well because uh, they don't want any uh, not <laughs> it's important shit you don't want to lose your movies yeah they've actually got <laughs> pretty much they've actually got like a full hardcore um, security like SAS soldier sort of type stuff <laughs> hanging out there apparently. And it has changed a lot of things. So software as a service is a new business model where customers buy a subscription, so that's everywhere. And that's um, through software delivered over the internet. And a lot of the time, the apps run on those cloud computers and not on the individual computers themselves. That's right. So you used to buy Microsoft Word on a CD-ROM and install it onto your computer so it lives on your computer. But now if you use Google Docs, it's living on the Google servers instead. But what happens if there's a sudden um, spike in, in viewership? So there's a few nuances here. If you are using a cloud computing service and then uh, Netflix launches something like House of Cars in 2015 and then they have a 30% increase in, in traffic. Um, so 
it was an issue at one stage when in 2008 when Netflix owned their own servers and you'd actually have to uh, buy the amount of servers to to cater for the peak, not the average. Mm. So that costs a lot of money. But when they switched to Amazon Web Services, it gave them benefits. <laughs> My voice is trailing away. You, just, you really lost it there. <laughs> back yeah. on, Ash Joe. Back good. on. So the... <laughs> Just slowly trailed away. So basically, Amazon, uh, obviously, you know Amazon for buying shit online, but a massive part of Amazon's business model is also their web services and a whole, uh, we probably should have looked up the stat, but a massive percentage of um, of websites really run on Amazon web servers because they do have a whole bunch of benefits over using your own. Um, a big one is elasticity. So as you say, when Netflix owned their own servers, they needed the peak, not just the normal you need to, uh, whereas on AWS, they can kind of cater for those big peaks because they're obviously going to borrow from somebody else at the time who isn't using as much. There's also the scalability. So for Netflix to grow so big, they'd have to have, you know, they have to keep building data centers all around the world, whereas now they can just say, hey, Amazon, can you give us a little bit extra? And then another big one is redundancy um, in that AWS, they've probably got multiple copies of the same shit all around the world, whereas uh, Netflix, if one building one data center caught on fire there goes 300 movies <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> probably not not quite that simple but there's some massive benefits of using aws so next time you watch in netflix stranger things or whatever it might be thank the engineers who decided to move them to the cloud because it, it did give the benefits to cloud computing <laughs> i think that when i'm watching a show tonight i'll just say thanks you uh, won't will you? netflix engineers <laughs> i don't I think won't. i will either <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's a simple, very simple book. This one, isn't it? So if you, if you're someone who just wants to, just curious about these little things in the world, and I think it does have some real world implications for where everything's going. And you're better off, in one sense, don't you think, going from a one out of ten understanding to maybe three point five to four out of ten mm. understanding. I think they did it uh, really well in terms of it was it's quite complex stuff, and it's very easy to come in. I think even one out of 10 is pretty generous. A lot of people are coming in with zero and someone just comes in and says CDN or API or SaaS or whatever or cloud and you just chuck along and pretend like you know what you're talking about. Reading a book like this with some simple stories, some simple analogies, some real world applications to companies that you know and use every single day is a good way to, to bump that knowledge up, I reckon. Mm-hmm.